Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by the National Pork Board, Intervention, Crystal Spring, Johnsonville Foods, High Pork Genetics, Minitube, Brenneman Pork, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, and PigEquipment.com, brought to you by American Resources. I'm Matthew Rota, your host, and today we're going to do a little bit different episode. We're going to be talking about the history of the Rota family in swine production and agriculture. And this is an exciting episode because I get to share a little bit about my family's background. And there's some pretty funny stories that are going to come out of this. So uh, to start off, I'd like to introduce my grandpa, Sid Rota. Sid, hello. Can you tell a little bit about uh, your background and how how you got into agriculture without going too far into it? Well, I grew up in agriculture. My dad farmed. Then I worked as a hired hand for a neighbor's, and the one neighbor, he kind of wanted to rent me his farm. Poor man had a tractor accident, rolled the tractor, and he's paralyzed from the waist down. And then uh, I did end up renting 80 acres from him. First experience I had with hogs, uh, back then they had like two pen hog sheds, uh, no floors in them. It was dirt. I found out real quick that that was a good way to spread pig scours. Lost a lot of pigs. That was the beginning. The following year, I got married back in 62. Rented a farm about 20 miles from my parents. I started with 12 sows. Had three pen hog sheds. Uh, Feraled them out in the field in the summertime. Would pull the hog shed up to where the sow was, was having the pigs. And as soon as she was done, I'd put her in a pen, move on to the next one. And that worked pretty good uh, back then. And later on, I had more sheds, as they say, it's scoop shovels and pitchforks, uh, no skid loaders back then. And I worked myself up to 100 sows and uh, sold feeder pigs along with what I could feed myself. And what year was 100? You had 100 sows. What year was that when you got to 100 sows? Probably about in 64, 65. It's a lot of sows for 1965, isn't it? It was at that time. And what I would do, uh, I would feed out the barries what I could, and sell the rest of them as feeder pigs, but hold a lot of the gilts back, sort the better gilts out of there, and breed, breed the hogs up. I started with a few uh, gilts from my dad, uh, mainly Durarock at that time, which was known to be good growers, but they had smaller litters, and I wanted larger litters. So I crossbred with New York and Hamp, Later on, I got uh, land race into the the mix. I'd always look uh, when I'd buy boars, it wouldn't just be a boar. I wanted to know uh, uh, as far as the back fat on them, the size of the loin, uh, days to market. I got the hogs bred up so they they would go to market real real quick. Gotcha. And then how did, how did it change from there? So you get to 100 sows, and uh, by this time, you said that was late 60s, so you have one, just Uncle Dennis at that time, right? 
Or no, and yeah. and uh, Aunt Carol. Yeah, we had two kids at that time. Yep. Yep. And then Dan, the man here, he come along back in 1970. He was a pig man. Uh, my oldest boy, he uh, was interested in mechanics, and uh, they both knew how to work. I was thankful for that. So before we get into the rest of that, we also have my dad, Daniel Rhoda, here with me. Dad, can you talk a little bit about what you do in the industry today and what your journey in the industry has is, is kind of been um, before we get even deeper into that as well? Well, thanks for having me, Matt. Um, it pretty much started out on the farm with Dad and working along with him. On my weekends, be busy hauling manure and grinding feed on Saturdays. And then eventually I went to town and got jobs because I could get paid at those jobs. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> then I was kind of wanting to get into farming, and that was in the later 80s. Things were tight, but I didn't really know if I wanted to take the jump of actually getting my own finances into it. And my dad said, Dan, go to school and learn how to do it right and work for somebody. Just do it just so you're doing what you love. So I went to school, got a degree and uh, got married to my wife in 91, moved to North Carolina, managed uh, large side units down there for uh, six years. And that was with J.C. Howard. As with J.C. Howard Farms and with uh, Sasha's Mill Livestock. And then came back to Iowa and worked for, at that time, Pork Technologies. And uh, went through some tough times in the late 90s. Uh, I was promised promotions to get in some really large sow units to manage sow units up here. The economy went south, so I was stuck in some older ones for a while. And eventually I worked to my point where I was managing right at 7,000 sows in southeast Iowa. And uh, through time, disease, and animal concentration kind of pushed the sow units out. And now we are contract finishing for a large organization. How many spaces contract finishing? Right now, about 50,000 spaces. So when we go all the way back to the seventies or the beginning of when you got to a hundred sows, I guess how, how many sows did you eventually get to was a hundred about the, that peak or hundred was all I could handle with my facility. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and the amount of labor on, on site. Yeah. Um, what was it like to raise a hog in the early 1970s and market that hog? For me, it was not a whole lot different what it is when I finished up, but what I ran into, uh, I started contracting pigs or hogs, and uh, you could contract smaller numbers, and that was working real well. Then pretty soon they, they wanted larger numbers, which I was not able to deliver. Uh, the smaller contracts, they give you three weeks to deliver that contract. So if you bring some in the, now, you can bring in more next week and the more week the week after. But it got so... Uh, they wanted a whole business at once. And being small the way I was, there's no way I could, could do that. So that made it rough. I couldn't lock them in anymore. So I was basically on the open market. Mm -hmm. The feeder pig end of it was good. The pigs I couldn't feed myself, I would sell feeder pigs, and that, that helped. Can you talk through some of like the first uh the first time where things got difficult and what it was like to navigate that, what was the first year where things were really tough? 
for me, the 80s was real rough. Uh, I got hit with PERS. I would take that back. It's 73. We had floods. And my wife says, now, she says, you don't seem to be too worried. She says, uh, the crops don't look good. They're flooded out in the bottom. I said, Mom, look at them sounds. It was all bellied out and looked like they was going to have huge litters. And then I got hit with purrs, and they absorbed them pigs. So that was a very bad year. And then also in the 93, when, or 98, when the bottom dropped out, I uh, sold hogs for seven cents a pound. Oh. That was a rough one. So when you went through some of these rough patches, like in the 80s, did did you stay farming or did you also uh, have to work another job? What are some of the things that you had to do to get by when, when things got real tough? Well, I kept the hogs going and I worked as a welder. Uh, our time started at nine in the morning, worked till quitting time. But I found out the welding helmet's an awful small world. Then had a chance to get with a feed dealer feed and seed, and I sold feed, seed, made deliveries. I loved that job. That way I could be out and trying to help other farmers out. I knew the cost of production. Uh, I knew how much feed the hogs would eat on the average. If the man hadn't sold his business to another company, I'd probably still be there. <laughs> yeah. So when you were working as a welder and and selling feed, did you still have a hundred sows or did the herd go down in size a little bit during that time? I still had them. Still so had you're them. a busy guy. Yeah, I met myself coming back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very busy time. Was that late eighties? Late seventies and the eighties. Okay. Yeah. So then that as you grew up, what are some of the memories that you had growing up of in the family farm business as you were going through the 80s? Because you probably remember some of that. Uh, what what was it like, and uh, what role did you play on the farm? I was labor. Um, to be honest with you, uh, it was. I didn't so much have to do chores in the morning before I went to school, but after school, was come home, get off the bus, eat a peanut butter sandwich, and go out and do chores. Everything had to be turned out. Pens had to be cleaned. Scrape the feeding floors, grind feed, whatever, odds and ends. But the biggest memories I have from the late 80s or the middle 80s with the economy is that I'd be like, hey, Dad, these these barns need work. Pigs are eating the wood on our old sheds. Well, won't you go look back in the pile of that old barn that we tore down? Maybe there's some scrap wood that we could put something together. Well... Then later on, I was seeing these neat ideas you go to the sale barn and how they have their alleyways and the gating and everything set up. And, you know, I mentioned to Dad, you know, things would be a lot easier if we didn't have to use uh, the hog carrier to move animals around. If we just build alleyways from barn to barn, then we wouldn't have to move our heavy sows when they're starting to pick and whatnot. And, yeah, Dan, uh, you going to go to town and make the money to be able to do that? <laughs> no. He laughed. <laughs> <laughs> but uh there's a lot of good memories. There's a lot of good memories that uh no. sounds like you played, tried to play chicken with a tractor with a with a semi. That's when I was like in fifth grade. 
was in the spring. We were harrowing. I was running a 60 John Deere with a harrow. And I believe you had a, was it a plow I was pulling? Yeah, 30, 20. It was getting close to dark. And uh, Dad said, hey, why don't you just hop on that 3020 and drive it back to the yard? Well, I had never driven the 3020 at night before, so I didn't even know how to turn the lights on. And it was about dusk. It wasn't completely dark yet, but I was going around an S-curve, and I met this semi that was pulling uh, a fuel barrel on the back, I think. And he caught the outside duel and uh, destroyed the duel and kicked my rear end over. Didn't go in the ditch, but it scared me so doggone bad. I drove the tractor all the way back to the house or where we were at. Dad pulls up and says, what were you thinking? You know how to turn them lights on. Uh, Dad, I've never done it with this tractor. With the 60 I had, but not with this one. You naked poop. <laughs> Different times, uh, fifth grader driving around on a road with a tractor. <laughs> it was, especially about dark. He took off running for that tractor, and I says, be sure you turn them lights on before you pull on the road. And I looked back a little later, and I seen brake lights, and I thought, oh, no. So I went over there. It was pretty quiet by that truck. The truck drivers was well down. And that was a learning lesson for both of us. So at that time, it, you guys were using pull-together farrowing barns with, with sow crates, right? And then you would turn them out during the day. And I guess, what did that look like, the, the farrowing house for you? And what was, at the time, the, the live born and the number of pigs you might have weaned per litter? They'd probably have 10, 12 pigs. I'd wean about eight and a half. The thing that bothered me, you'd go out there and see a nice litter of pigs, and you'd be make you feel real good. you think, hey, God really blessed me. And uh, go out there a couple of days later, and Sal laid on a pig or two and had scours in them. you treat them, and that was disheartening. But it, it worked out. I think there was a time where you had said, Dad, that uh, and you and Grandpa were talking, and Grandpa, you had said, there's no way we get to wean in 10 pigs, or that'll be the day when we wean 10 pigs. Do you, either of you remember that? I think I did one time. <laughs> one time in all them years. Yeah. And now people are weaning over 14, and it's just crazy how fast the genetics have evolved and how much pork production has changed. When... When you went to school, Dad, and you ended up moving over to North Carolina, what was that like? Because at the time, North Carolina was, what was that, 80 or 90, 1990 when you moved over there? 91, we started down there. 91. So they, they're, what, four or five years into revolution, or like changing the industry and the mm -hmm. model. At that point, Murphy's was going crazy with expansion. Uh, J.C. Howard Farms was just really getting started on their expansion. And they got up to 60,000 sows, didn't they? I think they said J.C. Howard got all the way up to that, but maybe I'm wrong. I do not know. But, uh, yeah, myself and John Moorfeld, a classmate of mine, went down to interview uh, mainly for uh, to do internships for college. And John... Did an internship at J.C. Howard Farms, but I wanted to go to Murphy's and see what that was all about. I mean, it just blew my mind walking into a 3,600-head sow unit. Back then, that was big. 
that was very big. Um, you know, J.C. Howard Farms, I interviewed with them, and they're a little bit more family-oriented at that time. Uh, it wasn't all corporate, and that's what kind of it interested me a lot. And I still have very good memories of that place. I really do. I had a father-in-law. He uh, had a dream of one of his grandsons going on his farm, his small place, raising hogs the way he did, which was basically what I was doing. And uh, we took him down North Carolina and walked in the hog building. And Dan says to him, Grandpa, how long do you think it'd take to feed these hogs? Grandpa looked up and down the alley and says, it'll take quite a while. Dan walks up to the electrical switch and hits a couple of buttons and they was all fed. Boy, he says, that didn't take long. <laughs> we got back from that vacation. Grandpa sells his hog equipment off. So Dan's never going to want to come here. <laughs> <laughs> he got back and sold his hog equipment? Yep, yeah. sold all. Yep. Well, that doesn't tell you something. Now, I was actually talking with Randy Stacker. So Randy would have been one of the the key key influencers in changing the market with Wendell Murphy at Murphy Brown. And uh, he told me when he joined, and I asked him, would you have interviewed interns? Would you have connected with interns as they came and visit? He goes, it depends on the year. And I said, said the year. And he goes, yeah, most likely. No, I, I think he actually might have interviewed with 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 Randy or someone someone up there. But that's a uh, it was a very small world at the time over there with a lot of change. I was working directly under Scott Bach instead, who was from Iowa also. But I do remember going to an interview. I do not remember the name of the guy. I mean, you think about that's been a long time ago. I, and I saw a vet you work with at uh, AASV this year, Randy Jones. Randy Jones. So Randy Jones and. Uh, was Dr. Flowers a vet at the time? Billy Flowers, he actually came to Sasser's Mill Livestock with an ultrasound that they would use in hospitals. And uh, we preg tested with the preg tone directly in front of him, and they did the ultrasound. And we had difference on opinion on 350 head I had a difference of opinion of about three sows. And of course, I was wrong with my bread tone. They were right with the ultrasound. But that was the very beginning of the ultrasound starting up in hog units, which is kind of a neat memory also. That is pretty cool. What about as you came to Iowa? What, what about production in the early 2000s and the stuff you were involved with with some of the research trials? What were some of the things that stood out from that time? Boy. I tell you what, when you got a company that's trying to uh, take off, you try lots of different things. Um, and I was always willing to try something in a minute, small pod so that I could evaluate, do I really want to move forward with this? Um, boy, the full feed on sows in the parent house, that was uh, a big thing that we messed with. Uh, oh, stray voltage was something that I stumbled upon that uh, a lot of people don't even realize that you have. Um, if you don't have your ground, your facilities grounded out properly, uh, you can get stray voltage rolling through your water lines. Which at the time, that, that was prior to a lot of the studies that, I mean, you, that was pretty early. That was in about 97, 99. 
Yeah, I think a lot of the research I saw on stray voltage came out mostly in the early 2000s or, or late 90s. So it, it kind of was a surprise when people identified this was something that was going on that was actually impacting production. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was working on a, a 1200 head sow unit at that time, back in about 98 when everything's tough. And I was seeing uh, baby pigs that were having a hard time getting started on water whenever a sow wasn't milking well or anything. And uh, we come to find out that we had stray voltage going through our water lines down to the crates. It's a minute amount, but uh, if you think about a dairy, I mean, any stray voltage at all will throw a cow off. Um, but we got that figured out and uh, production went up. Our pre wean mortality got better. It was, it was interesting. It was fun. Didn't you guys do a trial that got written up a national hog farmer in the, in the late 90s? I wasn't actually involved with that. That was okay. the MPPC trial, and that was at two of the sow units that I eventually ended up managing, but the trial was over by the time I got into that. What, what was that trial that they did with the MPPC? What they did is they brought in a whole bunch of different genetics, females, genetics, and placed them in the sow unit, and they took a lot of records on them um, to determine those are able to maintain back fat through their lactation period. Uh, they were scanning them, and they're, of course, keeping track of conception rates and uh mortality, they're born alive, the whole production thing. And uh, come to find out, I believe it's the Nebraska Index female ended up winning it. But the trial took three years. So by the time all of the information came out, every genetic company said, well, we have advanced our animals so much over the last three years, <laughs> this null and void is not even really that important. So it wasn't even relevant anymore. No. But uh, Nebraska Index Female was the top at that time. So to kind of go back to a more broader topic, before we started recording, we were talking about some stories and castration was a kind of a common theme. <laughs> so, Grant, but can you start off just by talking about the the friend of yours, what we'll call a friend, I'm not sure it was a friend or not, it makes, sounds like he made you castrate a big pig, but can you talk about what castration was like? I, I sold him some pigs that weren't castrated. He bought them a dollar cheaper, but he ran behind his cattle. And come fall, they went on vacation, we did their chores, and the pigs had never been Castrated. I said to my wife, I said, now they call and need help. Uh, I'm busy. A couple of days later, she comes out. And I was milking a few cows at that time and comes out to the barn. She says, well, the neighbor called and he's needing help. And he said, I, I told him you'd be there in a little bit. So I said, I went over there and I said, those hogs are walking behind them cattle. I said, the manure was probably about oh, six, eight inches deep. I said, now what? Well, I said, we were running up there in that barn. Well, that barn was the same deal. I said, now what? Well, I said, we'll dump a batch of straw in there. And he said, they'll dry off us. Well, all we ended up with, with was greasy straw. Just <laughs> straw covered in shit. That's right. <laughs> Anyhow, he says, now what? Well, I said, we'll run them in the, where I milk my cows. And I said, this feller didn't like hogs too well to start with. And I said, whenever they come in there, he'd hit them in the flank and roll them on the side and jump on, and I had to cut them. 
Anyway, he had his little boy standing up on top of a cattle gate watching him. He must have been about four years old. And I'd, whenever I'd have a testicle, I, I'd just kind of toss it that way. Pretty soon he says, hey, Dad. Yeah, Rick. Wouldn't it be one hand of a job if we had to put them all back in there again? <laughs> His dad says, yeah, Rick, it would be. It would be. And wasn't yeah. there a time you were castrating and, and Josh, uh, your oldest grand grand grandkid, was standing there and got in the wrong place at the wrong time? Yeah, them kids would climb up on top of these three-pin hog sheds. I had them lined up, and uh, they were standing east and west. How they ever got on top of them sheds, I still don't know. But anyhow, there was one standing north and south and was cutting them down below, and I just tossed that little testicle up there to the – there's cats on that north-south one, and they'll catch them, and they was having a heyday up there. The next thing I knew, hey, Gwomp. The poor kid caught one right in his mouth. I didn't know he moved from one shed to the other. <laughs> so I said, needless to say, he was spitting blood. <laughs> Today I asked him if he still likes his meat roll. <laughs> so what was it like having kids and grandkids on the farm? Do you have any fun stories of of that, either with your kids or your grandkids? Yeah, it was fun. This one Easter, they come to the door and said, Grandpa, I had some bicycles I'd picked up and fixed up so the grandkids could run them. And Grandpa, you got to air them tires up. Okay. So I went down to where I had my little shop and aired the tires up. And them kids weren't around. Pretty soon, the Matt here, he come walking with a sand shovel, all mud. So what you got there? Grandpa, where'd you get this? This sure is a good shovel. I said, Matt, Grandpa's kind of fussy about that. He better wash it off. So I sent him up to the hydrant. He washed it down. I wiped it down good with a gunny sack and sprayed WD-40 on there. And I said, you know, if you don't do that and those shovels get rusty, the next time you use it, every time you get dirt on it, every one you got to knock off. you got to keep them clean. A little bit later, another one comes up. There's a little creek. East of her house, of her little Grange ditch. Kids have been playing in that. I said to my other grandson, I said, what you got there? Well, this is your gum boots, Grandpa. It was a little deeper than we thought. Well, they had mud go over the top of them gum boots. Well, I basically did the same thing to him I did with Matt. Go wash them off and, and end up turning them upside down and put them in the sun so they're dry. And that was coal, right? And they were completely filled with mud. That's right. And these were your boots. And my boots. <laughs> It was about coffee time in the afternoon, which was between 3 and 3.30, and them bicycles hadn't moved. I thought, I wonder where them kids are at. I walked outdoors, and pretty soon I heard something from a barn. I just ground a couple ton of feed on Saturday. I went out there, and they laid a plank across from the top of that wagon, and I had a rabbit cage in there. They was on top of that. They had a chain gang. One was putting a little feed in the bucket, and they'd pass it on to the next one, to the next one. I didn't have to feed my sows for three days. I said, <laughs> boys, I believe they've had enough feed for the day. We're actually sitting in the office here at my dad, and I'm sitting here looking at the old picture on the wall of the farmstead, and I'm looking at this pull-togethers sitting on the farmstead. When we moved to Iowa back in 97. Dad got those pulled togethers, and after I got done with work, and on a Saturday I came and helped when we were working on them, and 
insulating them and putting new wallboard in. Well, Matthew was there because he had to get out of the house and run around. I think he was like five years old. And his cousin, Cole, was there. Dad and I are busy working on this shed. And the next thing you know, we look at them boys walking up to us and they are covered in hog manure. Oh, shoot. All over them. Well, what do you do? I mean, we can't just take him into the house all covered. It was a nice hot day. So, hey, we're just going to strip him down and spray him down the garden hose. (laughs) Here, I figured they'd be crying and whatnot, but they're having a heyday running through that hose. And yeah, those are good memories. (laughs) Well, and when I was little too, you brought me into the sow farm and you had me sleeve a sow. I don't know how old. (laughs) Tell them what you did. I think you were in kindergarten and you watched me pull a pig. Dad, you think I could do that? Well, you could try. So I got the glove on his arm and put some lube on it. And I said, okay, now you know where to go. Go ahead and stick your arm in. You feel anything? No, not yet. Well, push your arm a little bit further. You feel anything? No. Push it in further. Dad, if I do, I'll be kissing her butthole. <laughs> I think he was like six or seven. I don't know. He was. But he was our best pig puller until we said couldn't have him in Salyuted anymore because of insurance. <laughs> so when you guys think through all of your time in the swine industry, uh, what's the fondest memory that comes to mind? Uh, I'll start with you, Grandpa. Walking in and seeing a brand new litter of pigs. That, that was my fondest. It's a neat moment when you see it. Just, it is. Every time you walk into the farrowing house and you see a new litter of newborn pigs, it's... And how the pigs would go from one nipple to another and make their claim and how they'd find them in the first place. Very interesting. God created them. Wonderful. How about you, Dad? I would say, as a child, when we go in and turn the sows out, and go through all the work of cleaning out them stalls and then putting fresh wood shavings down, turning themselves back in, and they knew exactly where their babies were, and you let them back in the crate. They would bow their old back down, and then pigs would be nursing on them, and they would be grunting and talking up a storm to their babies. It was quiet. All you heard was the pigs. It smelled good. Then we got to uh, big sow units, and you've got steel everywhere. And let's just say it doesn't always smell the most wonderful. But it, it, it was special to watch some girls lay down and feed their babies, and it was quiet and warm in there during the winter. Those are good cool. memories. So I, ask, I usually ask a few questions to wrap these things up that are, that are maybe a little bit more goofy. Uh, won't go through as near as many. But what I ask is, what is your go-to karaoke song if somebody made you stand up on a stage and sing a song? I wouldn't know where to begin. <laughs> I didn't think you might. Dad, what would you sing? I think it'd be Bohemian Rhapsody. No. <laughs> Can't remember the name of it. That's a sad thing. What artist? Well, I would have to say one of my favorite ones is the Veggie Tale theme song. Oh my goodness. But that's where you get into musical warfare and the large style units where you get songs stuck people in people's head and they just want to cuss you for the rest of the day. Yeah, you do that in your cell farm. You'd walk in and these people would be singing the most annoying songs that you could think of. 
Uh, it might be a Mary Poppins song or something from some Disney movie or Veggie Tales, and they were intentionally trying to get songs stuck in each other's heads to see who would win. And that that might be in the most screwed up culture. <laughs> well, the thing is, though, you walk into a sow unit early in the morning and you're getting ready to wean pigs. People are tired. They don't want to really be doing what they're having to do right off the bat. People aren't in the best moods. You start singing some really crazy songs and acting like an idiot and the whole attitude of everyone working around you changes. They lighten up a bit and get a little bit more. Exactly. Start having fun. And, you know, even when you're castrated and have testicle fights, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that makes memories also. See, some people hear that. and it, it sounds like the nastiest thing, but I was learning to process pigs and I'm in this farm and these guys start throwing them at me. And, and I'm like, what are you doing? They're like, learn to process and you get the ammo. If you, 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 I'm like, you really do this to new people? He's like, we do this to everybody. Otherwise, people just pick up the guilts and they don't have to cut nuts. So uh, if you want to play or if you don't want to be hit, then you got to get the ammo and you won't be picking guilts. And that that's what encouraged individuals to grab the 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 borrows or the boars, right? The boars, two borrows. And uh, it's just you wanted ammo to get that back at people. <laughs> and you'd always wear a baseball hat and pull it down as far as possible and keep your head face down so that the bill would stop it from getting in the mouth, because that was always the target spot, so hit somebody in the face. Dan and me was cutting pigs one day, and I had spotted pigs, and I says, Dan, get that one over there. He stopped and said, yeah, Dad. They all look the same. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still do that working now. We'll be sorting hogs, and I'm like, get the white one over there. It's one. <laughs> quite often i get a dirty look whenever i say that but every now and then i'll get a chuckle so before we sign off here the last question i ask is for a golden nugget uh, a word of wisdom a bit of life advice that you could share to people listening uh what is what is a bit of life advice um doesn't have to be tied to pig production could be anything what what would that be for you grandpa for me it's trust in the good lord that he provides for your needs because there's going to be a lot of times you're going to have wants that are not going to be met. Just that simple. He's right there. Just let him know. He'll take care of you. What about you, Dad? I got to agree with Dad 100%. Our faith is uh, deep in our family. But, you know, people management is probably one of the largest challenges in the pork industry today. And I would have to say the little things like the testicle fights and the getting, singing weird songs and stuff, keeping your work environment light and happy. Um, yeah, I think that's probably one of the funnest things about it. Well, thank you both for being guests on the podcast to talk about just what it was like raising pigs, what how things have changed, and just sharing some fun stories. This has been uh, a real honor for me to be able to share this with with everybody. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.